Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So lessons in translation and apparently in like uh, Russian outlook, President Putin was asked in a press conference after the uh, summit just now about the state of the U.S. relationship. And according to some translations, he said, in ha- what, there is no happiness in life, only the mirage of happiness <laughs> or the specter of happiness, as some described it. He sounds like an Ingmar Bergman movie or something. <laughs> <Seriously>. <laughs> there's, there's no happiness. There is only the ongoing chess match with death. <laughs> I think it brings up the old adage that you never want to be in a nuclear standoff with an existentialist. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then I guess Biden was smart to meet with him. Indeed, indeed. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Spectre or Mirage edition. I'm Shane Harris. I like Spectre of Happiness, personally. I think it sounds like some sort of like wacky Bond villain spinoff. Really? It sounds like a, like an emo band. Spectre. Oh, yeah. Spectre, <laughs> yeah, of, Spectre Happiness. of Happiness. Note that down for the credits, Shane. <laughs> oh, I like this. I like it. I'm going to start noodling on this right now. And it seems to me like, I mean, it's a very subtle distinction, right? I mean, Mirage is something. I mean, I guess they're both something that you think is there that's not there. But I hear Spectre and I think Ghost. Like maybe there was once happiness and now it's gone, but the specter remains. I'm going to look up the Russian word while we're talking. Okay, very good. I'm pleased to. I am here in the virtual jungle studio with my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and our very special guest, Jeremy Shapiro. If you have been here since the beginning of Rational Security like we have, you'll remember Jeremy was the second First guest on the second ever episode of the podcast. I am the er the OG. You're the original guest. (laughs) I take credit for everything that's happened so far. (laughs) And was that the high point of your of your career as a as a think tank scholar? Uh, Definitely. It's been frankly all downhill uh, since then. It's been a sort of whirl of uh, drugs and despair. So this is. I'm hoping that this will be the way that I crawl back out of that pit. There's no commentary like rational security commentary. Totally, this totally. is this is the the pulp fiction for your John Travolta. John Travolta. <laughs> well, this is then bigger and better things clearly happened for you, right? Because like John Travolta went on to do like Phenomenon. Oh yeah, and a lot of other really bad movies. No, good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Jeremy, in addition to being um, apparently our our original and favorite guest. He is currently the research director at the European Council on Foreign Relations, so that's good. And a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings, so things have worked out very nicely for you, and we're very glad that you're back on the pod. Uh, And this week, world leaders convene in the UK and Brussels as President Biden makes his first official trip abroad. President Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin have a face-to-face meeting in Geneva, and leak investigations aplenty have ensnared journalists, former officials, and members of Congress. Let us start before we get to the question of the summit, which is uh, wrapping up as we're recording this on Wednesday at around 1.15 Eastern. I don't think President Biden has given his press conference yet, but of course, President Putin has uh, given his specter of a press conference. But let's start with the G7 and the NATO meetings. <clears throat> um, the G7 took place in Cornwall this year, a uh, group of world leaders, obviously. Uh, I think the last one was done remotely, right? Didn't we do the last one via Zoom, the last G7? It's certainly the first, like, you know, world leaders meeting in the 
post-pandemic, cautiously post-pandemic era. And then President Biden was on to Brussels for the NATO summit. Uh, Lots of talk in Cornwall about America being back in the club. America is back, kind of continuing the theme. Uh, We can talk about as well what happened at the NATO summit. There was this awkward tweet from Ukraine where they seemed to suggest that they were now going to be a member of NATO. We can get to that. Um, Jeremy, start us off here. What do you think is the big takeaway from your perspective for these two meetings, the G7 and the NATO summit? That America is back, baby. And, you know, I mean, I think that the the White House labeled this the America is back tour. And they set a sort of low bar for themselves to not be the kind of train wreck that Donald Trump was in these European summits and to sort of be able to reassure uh, allies in this sort of first foreign trip for Biden that, that things were kind of back to normal, you know, at least for the next four years. I think that that was actually the main purpose of the trip, and, and, and it sort of accomplished that. The secondary purpose, also quite important, was to put China on the agenda of the European allies and of the G7. That was you know, moderately successful, but I think they also sort of revealed, they set up all these tech alliance councils, and they managed to push off some trade disputes, and they, I think they concluded at the G7 what's potentially a very important global corporate tax regime. But I think they also showed that even as Europe and the United States are both worried about China, they have a very different, they still have a very different approach. The Europeans are still not entirely comfortable with what even the Biden administration is doing. And they are uh, additionally, I think, not going to get on board just just because the Biden administration tells them to. Tammy. Yeah, I I guess, you know, when if this is the America is back tour, then I think, you know, the return question from European partners is, okay, but really, like, or for how long are you back? Are you still, is it still going to be this America in four years? Or is it going to be the the Mr. Hyde America instead of the Dr. Jekyll America, right? And so I, you know, Jeremy, I think your expectations, as you expressed in in a piece that you published in Politico a week or so ago, you know, were pretty low, maybe appropriately low. But it's clear that the White House is trying to put forward an image of, you know, shoulder to shoulder confronting COVID, shoulder to shoulder confronting Russia, you know, uh, no, we don't have any trade disputes. We just set up a committee to talk them out together. Like, and I guess the real question is, since you follow this stuff much, much more closely than I do beyond the messaging, how much unity is there really? Like, where did you see the gaps that perhaps I might have missed? Yeah, uh, look, there's a reasonable amount of unity. I mean, as much as you ever have, uh, I think China is a huge problem. And it's, it's a big problem because China is very far from Europe. Europe is pretty addicted to the Chinese market. There's a lot of differences within Europe on China, and they're not really willing to get on, to, on board with the sort of full-throated Biden ideological jihad against China as long as they see you know, Donald Trump lurking in the background and they, they see America as not being super reliable, as you pointed out. At the same time, you know, this is Europe. They got no place to go. They want American interaction. They want America to be involved in their security and to be involved in Europe. So they're not really attempting to embarrass or question Biden in any way. And that's why the press conferences at these summits have been like love fests. And, you know, the the U.S.-EU summit was, was almost embarrassing at how gushing the European Union leaders were over Biden. And I think that that does reflect, yes, they have the worries that you that you mentioned about four years from now, but they've just decided to sort of embrace the idea that America is back. And then, you know, it behind the scenes sort of laps into their general approach of contributing as little as possible to America's geopolitical priorities. They sound like many Democrats and much of what used to be called the Republican Party in the United States. <laughs> Go ahead, Ben. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 the question I, it seems to me, there's a lot of ways to be back. And the presentation that the Biden administration wants for America is back is kind of like the return of the Jedi. But I think of it as, at least on the table, is whether 
from a European perspective, it's a the, little bit the more Empire like Strikes Back. no, a little bit more like the Return of Martin Guerre. Oh, you know where where uh, the film about the medieval guy who shows up back in town, uh, claiming to be a guy named Martin Guerre, and uh, nobody knows if it's really him. You know, America's back, but like, who the fuck are you now? And I guess I guess I'm I'm interested in your sense of you know, okay, it's a comfortable thing to come back and say, all right, America's back and Europe goes to back to its traditional posture of contributing as little as possible, saying all the right things. And yeah, we have different approaches to China, but in the background, there's got to be a little bit of Martin Guerre stuff going on here where the Europeans are like, can we rely on you to be you over time? And I'm just interested in your sense of how, you know, how behind the smiles and the gushing the Europeans think about that. You know, they think about it all the time. And I, I don't think I've had a conversation since Joe Biden was elected where they haven't mentioned it in exactly that way. It's just that they have no idea what to do about it. You could say, oh, well, OK, we, you're worried about an Ivanka Trump administration in 2025. So we're going to have a hedging strategy and we're going to build up European autonomy and European sovereignty so that we can defend ourselves without the Americans. But they don't want to do that. And they're not they don't have the unity to do that. They don't want to spend the money and they're too addicted to the American security umbrella. So they're not really putting any operationalization behind the fear, the sort of Martin Gare fear that you just described, even though they certainly have it and express it. And of course, it's a rational one because I have it too. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I sort of, we have our politics and our politics are polarized and that's worrisome to our partners in Europe, but they also have their politics and their politics are also polarized, right? I mean, part of what's going on here is that Germany is going to have elections this fall to replace Merkel, who is stepping down. And the French have elections coming up next year, right? And and there's a lot of chatter about a potential major showing in those elections by the far right, Le Pen. And so, you know, it's not only that they're looking at us and wondering what we might be like in four years. We also have to be looking at them and wondering, like, the Biden premise here is that if I can get my European partners on board with this whole democracy versus autocracy, you know, then I can go out to other parts of the world and bring them on board as well. But, you know, can America count on the European countries? Uh, I would say no, but, and frankly, no, even even if they didn't have those domestic political problems you just described. But I guess, I think that the Biden administration has fairly low expectations for Europe in this regard. And they're not really, I mean, they're, they're definitely trying to get the, the Europeans on board for their China agenda, but they're not expecting that much. I wouldn't say they have unrealistic expectations. They're expecting political support. They're expecting a, a dozen or so different dialogues. So it's a sort of full employment program for American diplomats. But they're not really expecting, and they don't really feel like they need to get European help on most of their China agenda. The key allies for the China agenda are elsewhere. They're in, they're in uh, Asia. So in that sense, Europe is no longer the central front in, uh, in the new Cold War. Asia is now the central front. Europe has an important role, but they're not really expecting that they're going to get that much out of them. And they're also not expecting a huge problem from Europe. So I think from a Biden administration perspective, Europe is neither the problem nor the solution to their China issue. Uh, and that's what this tour is supposed to express. You know, get as much help as you can, get all the positive PR, make all of the positive signs about being on board, set up enough commissions to strangle the press, and then move on to uh, some of the more difficult and interesting for the China problem relations in Asia. As long as all the summits are held in places like Geneva and Vienna, I think the International Press Corps will be just fine camping out. Oh, yeah. My colleagues are really suffering over there right now. Jeremy, before we move on to the next segment, though, <clears throat> I want to ask you, maybe maybe we should just get to it in the next segment. But, you know, if the U.S. believes that it doesn't really need European allies to affect a China-centric strategy for all the reasons that you 
laid out there. Did Biden do enough to rally European allies for a strategy to counter Russia? I mean, it seems like that's, I mean, still, I mean, at least in that part of the world would be the big strategic adversary. Was there not enough talk about Russia or was that just overshadowed by more of the headlines about China, which were frankly the ones that I tended to see coming out more of the, of the, from the two summits? Yeah, I, there was a, quite a bit of talk about, about Russia. And if you look at the NATO communique, which is, you know, longer than a, than a Marvel movie script, it, uh, it has a huge amount on Russia and it's super tough on Russia. And that's, I think that that's a place where it's very easy for Americans to get agreement from Europeans and even contributions. I think that the struggle that the Biden administration has on Russia is that it's less getting European support. It's getting, it's getting Europe to take responsibility and getting Europe to step forward. And so in that sense, if you pay, if America pays too much attention to Russia, if America spends too much of its time sort of rallying European opinion on on Russia, it's assumed that it will play its traditional role of sort of anchoring European security and bearing the, the biggest burden vis-a-vis Russia in European security. And that's a problem for Biden's China policy, because if you're going to shift to Asia, you have to shift from somewhere, and that's got to be Europe. So I think that the problem, I mean, just to sort of summarize it, the problem for for the Biden administration on Russia is not European cooperation or European agreement. It's that it's the lack of European responsibility to, that would allow the uh, the Biden administration and the United States to be more focused on China. So let's transition then to talking about the Russia summit, uh, the Putin summit. Jeremy, I'll turn to you to kick us off again on this, too. There was a reporter at the end of Putin's press conference. I don't know if Biden's has started yet, uh, who said she was asking a question on behalf of her nine-year-old daughter, which was more or less, why is this summit a big deal? (laughs) You know, explain to a nine-year-old why you're doing this uh, and all these people are here uh, in this lovely setting. But I mean, it seems strikes me as a really basic and good question because expectations also seemed quite low heading into this. There was a lot of people who criticized President Biden for offering kind of a reward to to Putin as they saw it for doing this. Uh, The Republican National Committee, I won't say inexplicably, but in a move that won't surprise anybody, criticized President Biden for caving to Vladimir Putin. But, you know, why did this matter? What's the big deal here? Uh, well, look, that does beg the question as to why we don't just have the nine-year-old daughter in the press conference instead of the reporters, but I'll put that aside for the moment, because I think it is, a, it is a good question. It's a fair question, but I think- that I mean, she asked good questions. Yeah, no, she asked a good question. I think it's a fair question. It's just, I think this is a pretty good answer, because, you know, as you've probably noticed, U.S.-Russian relations really suck right now, and worse than suck, even relative to the Cold War, they have- uh, very little communication with each other. And so they've become, in Biden's words, unstable and unpredictable. And so that's pretty dangerous if you think about the fact that these are still countries with thousands of nuclear weapons sort of pointed at each other. So from my perspective, and I, I would think I would be very comfortable telling this to a nine-year-old girl, these people should be talking to each other specifically because they don't like each other and specifically because they don't like get along. And one of the great tragedies of U.S.-Russian relations is not so much that they've been fighting about the things that they disagree about, because they certainly do that, but it's that they fight about the things that they don't even disagree about because they have such bad communication and such poisonous domestic politics when it comes to each other. So I think that this was a, a useful summit for them to sort of say, look, you know, here's what, here's what really matters to us. Here's what we're going to talk about. Here are areas of agreement. Here are areas of disagreement. And then in a sort of important but symbolic move, a couple of important but symbolic, mostly symbolic moves, they, they sent their ambassadors back to each other's capitals, which is nice. I think that's the sort of basis of diplomacy. And secondly, they established a strategic dialogue on uh, nuclear stability, which is something that they both agree on. Uh, they, they actually have overlapping interests, but haven't been able to make very much progress because of the various other issues. So I, I think that that's far from uh, any kind of panacea or solution to the problems in U.S.-Russian relations. But it's nice that they're going to be able to talk about it. So I, I feel like the um, strategic stability dialogue that they agreed on, Jeremy, that you just mentioned on nuclear security is 
is important and it's it's important not only for the reason that you cited which is that you know it's a way of creating stability and predictability but also because it is actually a concrete repair of something that started to break down before the Trump administration but that the Trump administration really accelerated the undermining of which was the arm of the nuclear arms control regime right and if the US and Russia cannot have some fundamental agreements on rules of the road for nuclear security then there's no hope for Iran or you know talks or any of the rest of it and part of the Trump chaos machine was not just kowtowing to Putin you know like he did at the Helsinki summit on interference in our elections but not giving a crap about those fundamental pieces of architecture of international security. And so I actually thought it was quite meaningful, not only that they were able to do it, but that the Russians wanted to do it as much as the Americans and the Russians, you know, they, the only joint communique was on the strategic stability dialogue and said very explicitly, these two leaders agree that nuclear, no one can win a nuclear war and it, one must never be fought. And just reiterating that, like putting those basic rules of, of the road of international security back in front of everybody, I thought was, was reparative and important. I also think that like a lot of the unpredictability or instability that the Biden administration said they want to deal with in in dialogue with Russia is not fundamentally about the relationship between the U.S. and Russia. It's about the way Russia is trying to use its interactions with the United States and with all these other places in the world for the purposes of Putin's own domestic political agenda and his desire to stay strong and stay in power the way they are destabilizing democratic states as part of a message to the Russian people that democracy doesn't work and you, you know, you shouldn't hope for that and you should give up on it. And that I think is something that I don't, I mean, I I don't expect that any American president could persuade or bully or incentivize Putin not to do that because it's driven by his own domestic imperatives. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Yeah, let me agree with your first point and disagree with your second, uh, which should be should be helpful, I guess. Um, I think that the strategic stability talks are are very important for the, exactly the reasons you say. Uh, and you know, I'm also not in favor of nuclear war, so I think I can get on board with both Putin and Biden on that front. I, I think that there are a few complications. <laughs> we agree. We, we all agree. <laughs> yeah, uh, there are a few complications that we should acknowledge. I mean, the first is is the American side, which is that the Republican Party basically doesn't believe in in international treaties anymore. Uh, and so the dismantling that you referred to by Donald Trump wasn't an, uh, an aberration for the Republican Party. And so it becomes very difficult to sustain arms control, which is a sort of long-term uh, occupation if one party who gets into power every four or eight years is just dismantling these things left and right. The second complication is that the Russians have been cheating on a variety of these treaties, particularly the INF. And so they've really eroded trust in the arms control edifice, even though they have a big interest in it, the interest that you described. I think that the third complication that we really need to understand, which is, which is I think, a problem for both of them, 
is that as the Chinese have become more of a, an issue, the fact that the Chinese are not in these negotiations at all and that these arms control ideas don't uh, embrace the Chinese and therefore limit the Americans and the Russians, but don't limit the Chinese, uh, is becoming a, a problem, particularly when you get to intermediate range nuclear forces, which is why the INF Treaty probably broke down. So uh, ultimately, you want to be bringing, I think, others into this, and that's a longer term proposition that the Chinese at the moment don't seem remotely interested in. On your more difficult point about the Russians, uh, that Putin is doing this for domestic purposes, you know, on one level, absolutely, of course, and, you know, every leader in the world uh, is subordinates his foreign policy to his domestic politics. And so Putin is definitely doing that. I do feel as if this idea sort of serves as an excuse on the Western side to say, A, there's nothing we can do to incentivize Putin, and B, that, uh, that, that our actions don't matter. And, you know, the thing about Putin's arguments to his domestic polities, he doesn't make them up out of whole cloth. They come from somewhere. And his fear about the West using colored revolutions to change the regime in, in Russia and to reform Eastern Europe and to create hostile states on Russia's borders is not a fantasy. It's, it's American policy. It's Western policy. It has been Western policy for 30 years. And so, yeah, he definitely instrumentalizes that in domestic politics. But, you know, it's like my mother, the psychologist, always used to say, you're not paranoid if everyone is out to get you. And I think we probably should be aware that, that we are feeding this domestic narrative in Russia. And, you know, uh, if, if we stop tomorrow, it's true it wouldn't go away. It's true it's instrumentalized. It's true that Putin is interested in holding on to power, just like every leader is. Uh, and he'll use whatever uh, elements he can. But that doesn't mean that he hasn't actually correctly characterized the Russian-American dispute and that it and that it impacts him, his foreign policy, as well as his domestic policy. I want to make an observation and pose a different question to Jeremy. Uh, the observation is that I do think the mere uh, fact that we are having now a protracted conversation that does not discuss ransomware, poisoning of dissidents abroad, or invasions of uh, regions of neighboring countries suggests uh, just how far Russia has managed to normalize some genuinely abnormal behavior that this summit happens. And we all kind of take that as, you know, there are issues that Biden is going to raise or complaints he's going to make. But in fact, nobody expects anything to be done about them. The question is, uh, Jeremy, I, I, you know, we haven't talked about the most important issue in U.S.-Russia relations. I'm interested in your sense of whether President Biden raised the question of Putin's refusal to fight me. And if so, uh, what do you think the conversation between the two of them was uh, how did that go? Yeah, I had a, a, a leak from inside the summit, and uh, it was four and a half hours long, but they did, I think, manage to spend about two or two and a half hours on the Ben Wittes wrestling question. Is it wrestling or judo or whatever? No holds barred. It's kind of, you know, free yeah. ultimate fighting, yeah. I guess. Yeah, but it turned out, and I think sort of Putin has this sort of whataboutism concept where whenever you sort of say, you know, you're afraid of Ben Wittes, he says, oh, well, you're afraid of. And so it turns out that, uh, you know, it hadn't gotten a lot of press, but, but Dmitry Trenin of the Carnegie Moscow Center has challenged Biden to a wrestling match. And so um, they hung up on that point. Right. Whether, whether there's a moral equivalence there. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think after a couple of hours of discussing that, I think they had to move on to the sort of less meaty issues of whether the two of them are going to destroy the world or not. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, we're going to we're going to stay on it. We're not going to let this issue die um, like Alexei Navalny. Um, and we're, we're just going to see what happens. 
but you have to acknowledge, Ben, that Biden is 78 years old. And if he ends up, you know, wrestling with almost any Russian analyst, uh, <laughs> that could be a really serious blow to the free world while you're getting your ass kicked by Vladimir Putin. So I'm not really sure that this is a good trade for America. I just, I just, I agree. There is no doubt that there are risks to uh, uh, mindless challenging people to single combat as a form of international relations. But, you know, no pain, no gain, as they say in the biz. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to have to just like, you know, tune in for Summit Part 2. Maybe that you maybe you should fight at the summit. If you'd fought at the summit, I don't know how there could have been more press there than there already were. But I am sure Estonia will host the fight. Oh yeah, you've got hookups in Estonia, totally. I guess I think that one of the things that's the most interesting about the U.S. Russia summit, given how it's not maybe the most important relationship in the world anymore, is just how important it is. I mean, there are twelve hundred journalists there. The G7 summit, which represents, you know, 60 percent of global GDP, didn't have anywhere near that many. NATO, which is, you know, all uh, all the great democracies in the world, didn't have anywhere near that many. No one even noticed that there was a US-EU summit. There were eight other bilateral meetings, I think, at least with with leaders as important as uh, Erdogan in Turkey and many others. And the only thing that people can talk about is Russia and Putin. And I mean, I think that that says something about the role of Russia in U.S. domestic politics, and which is well outsized its geopolitical importance, and, uh, and also, frankly, the role of America and Russia in domestic politics. I think it also says something about the fact that Geneva in June is a lovely place to be, whereas Brussels in June, it's just like every other month in Brussels. Oof. Cornwall, you're gonna get so much gorgeous. hate mail from the Brussels lovers. <laughs> All right, let's talk about a subject closer to home. Uh, there have been, I don't even know what to call these. I mean, leak investigations seems to be the shorthand. There have been subpoenas, there have been court orders for records of communications, including email and phone call communications, not content, we should understand, uh, involving reporters involving former administration officials, or at least one, the former White House counsel, Don McGahn, as well as two members of Congress, staff in the Congress, the minor child of a Congress member, we think. Seriously. Yeah. And it's and there's a great episode of the Lawfare podcast up this week, which I'll point listeners to with a, a really good panel that sort of tries to disentangle some of these different threads, because it's not entirely clear that they're all the same thing. But the thrust of it appears to be that uh, at some point in the Trump administration, there were pretty aggressive searches by the Justice Department to determine the leaks of classified information in the press. Some of that appears to be reporting around the new administration in Russia, particularly in regards to uh, former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn's communications with the Russian ambassador. Uh, there are stories that have appeared in CNN, The Washington Post, and The New York Times, I think, that are at issue here. Not entirely clear what the CNN story might be about. Not entirely clear if somebody was investigating President Trump's political enemies or if phone records or email records of members of Congress got swept up in a search of someone else's records. Ben, it's a little bit complicated, but like, what's our sense right now of, you know, what we understand this spate of leak investigations that's ensnared all these communications to be about? And, and how alarmed are you by it, particularly the fact that in at least some instances, news organizations uh, were given gag orders not to discuss widely anyway the fact that the government was seeking records of journalists? In, in other words, Ben, what the actual fuck? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Shorter so version. <laughs> Here's what I think we can say, and all of this is pretty tentative since, you know, I think what we don't know at this stage significantly eclipses what we do know. But number one, the Justice Department and the FBI, and we should be clear that these this is not simply the Justice Department under Sessions and Barr. It's also the FBI under both Comey and Andy McCabe and 
and then Chris Ray. So we're being very, very aggressive with respect to leak investigations. Now, that is not a surprise. Comey testified uh, before he was fired that they were he was very upset by the leaks and they had a lot of open leak investigations. Sessions gave similar testimony at various times. And so we knew that. In that context, it strikes me as nonetheless surprising the number of media subpoenas that there are. There, I believe, or or record orders, there are at least, I think, eight of them. It's a large number. Given how sensitive they are, it is, I think that number is pretty surprising. Any one of them, I think you could you could say might be justified. There is no law that says you can't do it. In fact, the law says you can do it. And though the media organizations hate it, it was done pretty aggressively in the Obama administration too. That said, the number of them is, I think, completely unprecedented. And it does suggest to me that they kind of threw a certain procedural caution to the wind. And how exactly that came to happen is not clear at all. And I think we should sort of endeavor to figure it out. What's more, the delays and the fact that some of these were done quite late relative to the leaks, I don't really understand a good good reason why that should happen. And I similarly think the the gag orders to the companies in question, though approved by federal judges, so I you know I don't this wasn't something that the administration did on its own. I find a little bit hard to understand. So I'm on the media subpoenas and orders side. Uh, I think the former Justice Department has a lot of explaining to do, and I think having a House Judiciary Committee investigation as well as a inspector general investigation within the Justice Department makes a lot of sense. I am less convinced that there is anything nefarious or upsetting about the congressional side. And here's the reason. Uh, These were done by subpoena, as I understand it, not by de-order. And that suggests to me that they were looking at the records of a possible subject for the leak, and the person had had contact with certain phone numbers or email records, and they turn around and ask the companies for the identification of the account. And that turns out to be Adam Schiff, or it turns out to be Eric Swalwell. It's not clear to me at all that the targets of the orders or subpoenas were the members of Congress. By contrast, it is completely clear that the targets of the de-orders in the media cases were the media organizations and the reporters. And so it's less clear to me that it was targeted at uh, the congressional figures uh, than it is that it was targeted at the individual press people. That said, if they were conducting investigations of Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell that would be really like enemies listy kind of stuff. And so I think we need a lot more clarity than we have on this. And, you know, I think having the IG look at it and having the House and Judiciary Committee look at it makes all the sense in the world. I just want to jump in in a quick point, too, on that and, and, and agree with Ben's analysis of this and that it is clear that journalistic targets were in play here. Uh, Speaking as a journalist, and particularly as someone who works at one of the institutions that was targeted, uh, I find it enormously troubling, these gag orders. And and maybe somebody can talk me off of that ledge. But the idea that the individual reporters in question were not aware of this, that counsel for these organizations was restricted in what it could and could not discuss. And I'll say, too, I have questions about this apparent negotiated settlement, if you want to think of it this way, that CNN appears to have reached with prosecutors, where they did apparently hand over some information uh, on Barbara Starr, Pentagon correspondence, 
communications. I don't really understand that. I'm sure that the lawyers, you know, perhaps if they felt that they might be about to lose a case, didn't want to log precedent in the books. But just speaking as as a journalist, it's really troubling. And I think that I've said this before too, probably on the podcast, a lot of people in my profession do though suffer under this illusion that there is something called like a reporter's privilege that protects our communications like the way it does with doctors and patients and lawyers and clients. Nope. <laughs> and in case you needed reminding, study these cases. Study Brandsburg v. Correct. It is an on-point Supreme Court decision. Correct. And it says there's no reporter's privilege. Yeah. And a lot of reporters don't realize that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so on your point, Shane, the gag orders, I mean, it seems to me that what those gag orders did was essentially lead reporters to potentially continue to put other sources at risk by talking to them, not knowing that their bosses were handing over their call records to the FBI. Right. And that's really, really troubling. Um, because there are other, you know, those people might not necessarily be leaking classified information, but they they might nonetheless find themselves endangered by simply by having contact with the reporter. But the other thing I wanted to ask both of you about from your different perspectives of press and and you know legal analysts, we talked a few weeks ago on the uh, well, we've talked all spring on the podcast about the challenge for the Justice Department of sort of reasserting its independence and its integrity in the wake of the Trump years. And, you know, when the news broke here, it was, I think, understandably framed as here's another example of Trump administration abuses and wielding the Justice Department as a tool against political adversaries. And as Ben pointed out, we don't necessarily know enough facts to know whether that framing is correct or not. It may be, it may not be. But what's interesting to me is that the Garland Justice Department, you know, what they're not doing is sort of repudiating this and saying this is horrible. You know, they did appoint the IG, you know, the IG is going to investigate it. But Garland's Justice Department itself is defending investigations of the media and trying to get information from the media. And so, you know, number one, like that seems to me to sort of close the door on any honeymoon that might have existed between the press and the Garland Justice Department. But I also think, like, how do we put that in context of our understanding of Garland's challenge here? How do you guys see him positioning himself? I I defer to bet on that, but I'll just say briefly, I mean, I don't think that there's really ever like, I mean, there's a honeymoon period in the sense that like whenever there's a new official, you're getting to know each other. But I don't think particularly like colleagues of mine who cover DOJ, I don't think that they ever expected that even... Merrick Garland Justice Department would not aggressively pursue leaks of classified information. I think it's what's surprising is maybe, you know, how aggressively the Trump people did it. But what the what the current DOJ leadership, at least in the White House, is saying, too, is they're going to they're not going to use these tactics anymore. So in that respect, it does seem like there's a a, a reigning in. Yeah. So a, a couple things. First is both the president or somebody on behalf of the president and the attorney general made clear that they were not going to be doing this. Now, I would be surprised, actually, if whatever the Justice Department did was obviously illegal, because actually the law here is so permissive that you really don't have to stray into the land. And so it actually puts the Justice Department in a tricky position because their job is to defend legal behavior by the Justice Department. The law it lets them do this kind of thing. And so you're really in the land where they probably have to defend the propriety of what the previous administration did, even as they make clear that they would engage in very different prudential and policy judgments themselves. Uh, so I don't think you're going to see them repudiate it. I do think you're going to see them say, hey, that's not how we want to engage the press. All right, let's move on to object lessons. Um, Tammy, why don't you kick us off? Okay, so my object lesson is a video clip from Putin's press conference in Geneva after the summit today. A sacco question from Rachel Scott, the ABC News White House correspondent, um, which I'm just going to play for you here. 
Mr. President, thank you so much for taking my question. Uh, President Biden has said that he would respond if cyber attacks from Russia do not stop. I'm curious, what did he tell you? Did he make any threats? And a quick follow-up, if I may, sir. Uh, the list of your political opponents who are dead, imprisoned, or jailed is long. Alexei Navalny's organization calls for free and fair elections, an end to corruption. But Russia has outlawed that organization, calling it extremists. And you have now prevented anyone who supports him to run for office. So my question is, Mr. President, what are you so afraid of? Okay, Rachel Sky. Yeah. So, you know, if we are trying to set up a contrast between autocracies and democracies, it may be that parts of our elected, you know, officialdom isn't behaving so well. Maybe uh, we're not so great at getting legislation passed. But boy, you want to see what a free press can do to hold leaders accountable in public? Go, Rachel Scott. Yeah. yeah. And just, Rachel Scott, watch what you drink over <laughs> yeah. the next few weeks. Yeah. <laughs> can I also just say, too, like, I mean, it's an intimidating thing to ask any world leader a question. But I mean, she was just on it, like no fear, no hesitation. Just it was just very, very well executed. I was like, that's how you do it. Nice job. I will go next uh, while we're on the subject of patting the press on the back. I'm going to log roll myself on this episode. I'm going to point readers towards a story that I have up now in The Washington Post uh, that is the result of a very long investigation that's gone through some fits and starts that I've been doing uh, for more than a year into the Saudi embassy in Washington and its efforts to help its citizens uh, accused of crimes in the United States to leave the United States and to, in some cases, uh, evade justice. This is a story that's gotten a lot of traction over the years and attention, particularly after a great series uh, that a reporter named Shane Cavanaugh did in The Oregonian about a number of Saudis there, particularly people who were here in the U.S. on student visas who had committed crimes and then were apparently spirited out of the country by their embassy. Uh, it is a crime to help people evade justice, we should note. Uh, this has become a real issue for some members of Congress, including Senator Ron Wyden. Uh, what we found and what this my story is really built around is the, uh, the apparently the most serious charges to date that have been leveled against Saudi nationals nationals who were here in the U.S. and have left and gone back home, uh, two men in North Carolina who were indicted for first-degree murder and the killing of a 22-year-old man in North Carolina. Um, there have been other serious crimes as well, but this is by far the most severe one. And his family really has been totally denied justice. There's a lot of evidence, I think, that the police did not handle that investigation in the best way. Uh, there was no question these two men were involved in the killing. It was investigated as self-defense initially, but apparently at no point were these two foreign nationals told, you know, don't leave the state, please, while we investigate this. Uh, and they left the country uh, four days later. Uh, so it's, it's a really tragic story, but it points to a bigger issue that is now getting more attention, frankly, as the Biden administration has said to the Saudis in private communications that you have to put a stop to this and we you know, demand trials for people who are accused of crimes in our country. We have no extradition treaty with Saudi Arabia. So check it out. We'll put a link in the show page. Uh, I'm glad we got this story out there. Uh, and hopefully it will bring uh, some measure of attention and maybe justice for uh, Raekwon Moore, who is the man who was killed in North Carolina. Uh, and for his family, who I'm very grateful uh, to them for cooperating with the story. Uh, ben, you're up. My object lesson is a newly released book by our uh, Brookings colleague and uh, frequent rational security guest, Jonathan Rausch, entitled The Constitution of Knowledge. And uh, That's a pretty highfalutin title. Yeah, sure is. Jonathan, as many of you will remember, wrote a uh, wonderful book in the 90s called Kindly Inquisitors. And this is kind of a sequel to that uh, that is uh, really about ecosystems of truth and how they develop and also how they are disrupted by ecosystems of falsehood and non-reality based uh, thinking. It is a really provocative and interesting book. It has nothing on its face to do with security, but it has everything to do with the background conditions of disinformation and information and reliability that have formed the 
the general ambience in which we've been talking for the last several years. And I strongly recommend it to people, as well as the uh, many interviews and conversations that Jonathan has been having about it recently. And he did one with Lawfare. Yeah. It has to do with the rational part of rational security. Yes, exactly. Indeed. Yeah. And check out uh, Alan Rosenstein did uh, a good interview with Jonathan. Uh, and uh, he did a really good interview with Andrew Sullivan on Andrew's podcast as well. That was a very spirited debate uh, at one point, which was good. Um, so, yeah, check it out. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. If we did have Rational Security rubber duckies, we would sell them at duckystore.lawfare.pond. Maybe we should. Yeah. See, I think that would sell. Like Shane a Harris rubber duckies. A, like a rubber ducky oh. with maybe like a, a, a three-headed rubber ducky, oh, a sort of Cerberus creepy. rubber ducky. <laughs> I like that. I like that. I think we should have a Susan Hennessy memorial rubber ducky. Oh, yeah. there you go. Yeah. Well, three heads and one severed. Oh! Ben! Oh! Oof. Ben. Good Very Lord. Bad. You're not in front of, you're not in charge of the children's toys division at professional security anymore. Susan would like that joke. She would think it was hilarious if yeah. she still listens to the podcast. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. You can find us on Facebook. Still up on Facebook, you guys. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. Hit that share button. Share it with your friends. Share it with others you know and love who've gone to work in the Biden administration, perhaps. Everybody needs a little pick-me-up. They could use this podcast. Our audio engineer this week was Hamza Shitu. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Uh, music this week by Vladimir Putin and his ironic emo synth cover band, Spectre of a Summit. Aha, nice. very good. Not really a summit. No. But Sophia Yan is really a masterful piano player. I do not think, however, she will be taking any gigs with Vladimir Putin anytime soon. On behalf of my good friends Ben Wittis, Tamara Goffin Wittis, and our very special guest Jeremy Shapiro, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.